Welcome back. This is Mr. Thompson once again from Washington High School. And our topic for this conversation is going to center around curriculum and instruction. What are some of the best practices? Um, what I think works well? And as a special treat, we've brought in a, a guest teacher, my beloved spouse, Kimberly Thompson, who has been an educator for many years longer than I have. And she's going to help um, engage with this topic and see what kinds of important takeaway points we can arrive upon. So, Mrs. Thompson, if you would introduce yourself, please, to our listeners. Greetings. Thank you for having me, Mr. Thompson, on your podcast today. My name is Kim Thompson, and I'm a high school social studies teacher. I've been in the profession for 15 years, half of which was in Wichita Public Schools and the other half at Blue Valley Schools. I currently teach AP Human Geography to mostly ninth graders, which is quite a challenge for all of us, uh, and AP government and American government. But I've taught a few other social studies classes throughout the years, and maybe it's just um, some kind of temporal bias, but I really do like what I'm working on right now with government and geography. So I'm really excited to talk about curriculum and what makes school tick. All right. Thank you very much, Mrs. Thompson. Um, so given that you've had experience teaching so many different courses. I know you taught U.S. history and world history, which is my wheelhouse right now, um, over a broad range of time from different communities, people with different academic strengths and backgrounds. Um, what is the secret to having good curriculum? <laughs> it's tough because, you know, it really starts with the culture of the classroom. But eventually, you know, you do have to talk about the content. So. I think a strong curriculum, especially in social studies, offers diverse perspectives from many times, many groups, many locations, you know, uh, religious perspectives and secular perspectives and uh, perspectives of indigenous peoples, locals, transplants, migrants, colonists, and we're really fortunate in social studies because <laughs> there's almost a an infinite sea of possible perspectives, seeing as there's 7 billion plus individuals on the planet right now. Right. That's where I would say I would start. Right. And I, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And just in my own limited experience working in a secondary classroom, uh, that's one of the main things that as the department, as our PLC, and then more broadly within the district, I know they want us to um, emphasize and kind of entice the students to start thinking about is how important it is to look at things from different sources and different perspectives and evaluate the relative merits of the sources they're looking at because a lot of not just students but humans in general have a tendency just to settle on the first thing that's put in front of them and accept that at face value or they'll seek out things that are only going to confirm what they already believe yeah they're echo chambers right. certainly do you find that social studies is difficult to like it's tough because we haven't been involved in other subject areas, but we've been high school students ourselves. So upon reflection, do you find that social studies is especially difficult to like get it right? Because there's so many subjective truths. I mean, in history, yeah, that thing happened on that day in that location, the context and the consequences. Why? Yeah. So, so do you find that just unusually difficult or complicated? Um, it's, it's different perhaps than if you were teaching 
geometry proofs or a math problem where there really is just one you know correct answer um and something that i always tell my students is when i'm posing questions to you um the assessments that i give for instance are usually very open-ended i ask them to take a position on a broad topic from the unit we've studied for instance um, when we did imperialism just recently there main case study that we looked at was the Boxer Rebellion in China. And we looked at a variety of sources, some of which portrayed the boxers in a very charitable way, some of mm -hmm. which portrayed them as a bunch of bloodthirsty maniacs. And so I put to the students, do you think the boxers were heroes or villains? Tell me why. Mm -hmm. And I would always reinforce that there's no right or wrong answer. What I care about is that you can draw from the sources we've studied to have an informed opinion. Yeah, it's tough because in this discipline, is the curriculum the content or is it some skill? And I think, honestly, it's skills building through content. You know, there is a point of reference, like, for example, the Boxer Rebellion. But really, the skill is evaluating, you know, historical contexts, revolutions, violence as a means of social change. So I think that's a, a wise approach. And it, for sure, assessments have to be a genuine reflection of that decision about that balance. Are you testing over the knowledge of dates and the and a student's memory skills, uh, the ability to place things in some kind of order, or is that order maybe more evaluative? Are they putting you know presidents in order of their contributions to American social issues? I mean, I think a strong curriculum and a teacher with a strong curriculum should do that. Right. Ladder thing. <laughs> yes, indeed. And that even thinking back when I was in high school is very different. Um, the mm -hmm. kinds of exams that we had really were about memorizing names of places or dates or people. And there was not a whole lot of kind of interpretive analysis, which is really the, the main thing that's done. Why do you think that is? Like, because we, we, I like to think I'm pretty young. We weren't in high school that long ago. Why was it for so long that American social studies education was really just regurgitation of events? I think a lot of it has to do with how much the subject area lends itself to, to propaganda. Yeah, yeah, it was really just kind of a, a poorly veiled attempt to educate students in a way that glorifies the United States. So like to secure this narrative of America as a, a beacon of hope and progress. Right. And minimizing some of the atrocities the United States has been involved with. Yeah. Or even more broadly, like colonization. I feel like as a student, I, especially in younger years, I learned a lot about how these were like explorers right. on these dangerous missions to secure like a new homeland and fleeing religious persecution. And it turns out while there may be an element of truth to that from a certain perspective, well, hot dang, there were a lot of other consequences. Exactly. I'm thinking back to even when I was in elementary school and we learned about Christopher Columbus and it was a very sanitized yeah. version of what actually happened. And uh, we knew that he discovered America and then, okay, it's time to move on to the next thing. Um, please excuse us one second. We have some background noise and my wonderful bride is making an intervention so it will not disrupt the rest of our conversation. Thank you all very much for your pace. Welcome back, Mrs. Thompson. Oh, thank you. Don't worry, everybody. We're still here. All right. So regarding assessing those skills, then, you know, I think for a strong curriculum and a passionate teacher who's really there for the purpose of learning as opposed to the purpose of telling, 
you know, those assessments need to reflect student practice. They need to assess skills, which of course makes them really tough to grade. Like, right. That's the worst part is you could spend 10 minutes throwing together some open-ended questions and another 20 on a rubric, or you could spend three hours putting together a multiple choice exam that grades itself. But ultimately, you know, it's worth that extra time on the back end, the grading end to really like assess, can this kid do the skill through the content in some kind of meaningful way? Right. And it's a challenge too, because most of our assessments take the form of, of written answers. And I know that that disenfranchises students maybe who aren't native English speakers or who just aren't strong writers. Well, that's why options are critical. On right. all, I mean, not that you have to provide a menu for every single assessment, but to build a culture where students know that there are other alternatives. And maybe you work with them one-on-one, -on -one, like if a student, you know, has dyslexia or you know, a physical disability that makes writing difficult or for whatever, you know, it isn't a native English speaker is there's gotta be some way that the student feels most confident in expressing themselves, not confident, but more confident than other means. Right. I think it's our job to, yeah, use that curriculum to build these skills and give them confidence in their weak areas. But ultimately when it's time to assess them on the skills, like pick the best way for the student to prove they're good at it, as opposed to trying to entrap them into some proof that they didn't listen for that 10 second period in some lecture. Like right, that's yeah, very good point, Mrs. Thompson. Um, I found that um, even outside just the realm of assessments, um, sort of as a byproduct of being in pandemic mode, um, we've I've had students, and I don't believe this is unique to my classroom, who have kind of fallen behind. They haven't done a great job keeping up. Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of people who are you know, on track to have to take world history again. So I've lately been really offering opportunities almost every every time we can for them to demonstrate that they've learned something or engage with the content and then give them some kind of credit for it. Um, and the result of that is, of course, that high achieving students who take advantage of all those opportunities have, you know, 120% in the class. Mm -hmm. But if that means that students who aren't strong readers or strong writers, but they can speak well, or they can explain something to me individually, or they can uh, take some kind of intellectual risk that it helps them get some kind of uh, equity in terms of the credit that they can earn for the class. Yeah, I feel like the skills in social studies lend themselves to a lot of different forms of expression because this, you know, the skills in this class aren't necessarily syntax skills and public speaking skills or even, frankly, multiple choice deciphering skills. They're more analysis and critical thinking. Those things can be expressed in numerous visual and non-visual manners. Right. So, yeah, for students... To, now, if, if the skill we are trying to, you know, teach or work with these students is, like, argument formation, you know, well, if the whole point is they have to be able to articulate a claim with distinct reasons, backed by evidence... Again, I don't see why that skill has to be a five-paragraph essay. You know, the skill can be articulated in a conversation with somebody, or they can create a diorama. I mean, there's got to be other ways that these students can prove these skills, because they have them. Right. A lot of these skills are innate, and we're just we're helping, you know, enrich them. 
they're all right. I mean, they have to, everyone has to think critically and make snap judgments and sort things and rank them. I mean, we just do that as human beings. Right. We don't even leave all of our shoes in the same location. We've sorted them and ranked them and left the flip-flops by the door and the dress shoes in the closet. Right. So we just have to nurture them through expressing those exact same skills through content that they may not be super com- familiar with. Very well said. I think, too, just making them aware that they do these processes in their mm-hmm. brain all the time, even if they're not thinking about it. And I, I try to make that point to them that this isn't any different than if you're having a debate with your friends about where you want to go after school or something. You're creating a hierarchy or using evidence to state your case and try yeah. to persuade your peers why your idea is the correct one. And you would put every like, to the student, you would put everything out there you had. Like if you're trying to convince your parents to extend your curfew, you are not going to forget a single thing right. about why that should happen. Like every single hundred percent or a, you got on a th- on a test and every dish you helped wash and every bag of trash you helped take out, all that's going to come rattling out when you're trying to convince your parents of this. Well, do that right. here. Just throw everything out there and let us see what you're capable of. And that, I think, encouraging them to just like prove themselves, you know, is the best way to get an assessment of their actual abilities. Indeed. Indeed. And I guess that's really the important thing is focusing on developing young people into discerning critical thinkers mm-hmm. and critical consumers of media. Um, that's what I tell them all the time is the the one thing I want you to come out of here with is that um, you you have informed opinions, that you're not ignorant, that you don't believe things mm-hmm. just because, that you have a reason for thinking what you think, because that will help you no matter what you do in life, and it will prevent people from trying to take advantage of you. It's especially, that you, what you said reminded me of something, like it's especially difficult for curriculum and social studies to please everybody because we are far more subject to... Mm, the interpretations of maybe less trustworthy sources. Right. And those, regardless of how credible they are, become truths to real people out there who are sending their kids to us. Right. That's tough to temper. What is it they're really supposed to know about things like racism in America or economic divides around the world? Mm -hmm. And some of that stuff is just incompatible with the versions of these truths that these kids are raised in. Right. And so how do we present this material that is in the curriculum to families who are resistant to it because they've been, like you said, they believe the first thing put in front of their face, just like we did, Mm -hmm. just like I still do probably. So how do we navigate such a difficult curriculum in some of these classes? Well, I think it's fortunate that, we have so much access to to digital information. There's so many things that are just available at your fingertips if you want to show two alternative perspectives on an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not that you have to spend hours in the library and then make Xeroxes out of <laughs> some obscure <laughs> bo- volume. You just pull up a website and you can show everybody. Uh, there's video, there's audio. I mean, everyone listening knows how the internet works, but it creates a, a wealth of opportunities to juxtapose different points of view and what the students see for themselves, what they're Surely, looking at. Surely, but it's just as easy to find incorrect information or incredibly biased analyses of these curriculum points and our mm. content as it is to read the Wikipedia page, you know? Indeed. So I think yeah, um, a strong curriculum and assessments will also ask students to evaluate, yeah, what they're, what they're seeing right. and what they're reading, what they're hearing, which is tough because it's kind of rabble rousing, you know, mm-hmm. social studies curriculum kind of just by happy nature is revolutionary. Right. 
Uh, I mean, those are the, like how some of the units are mm-hmm. segmented, yeah, you know? I remember the revolution unit. It, right, you know, the political ones and industrial ones and social ones and economic ones and environmental ones. And so it, it almost forces students to push back a little bit. And I think that that is a little threatening right. to some people. It's a good point. Um, I found I've also had success trying to to tie in some of the things we study with current events because mm-hmm. uh, I think it's so important for students to really be aware of some of the issues that are happening today. And for for the most part, many of them are. They they know you know when important news breaks, they're aware of it some more than others. But mm-hmm. they're you know they're not living in a under a rock and being able to say, well, hey, this is like that thing we studied the other day where these people are mad about something and then this happened and. Um, just hearing that and seeing it over and over, I think also helps also maybe sort of give relevance. Yeah. Sells, sells yeah. the importance of why, why are we studying history? Cause I've had kids openly ask me, why do we have to know this? What's the point? Yeah. Well, as you look at those photographs of Tiananmen square or um, Kent state, you know, you know, well, those are real people. Those are people who now are a part of something bigger and who have, made decisions that in some way butterfly effect, you know, you're in that seat right now. Well, you're that person too. Mm-hmm. You know, this right now, you don't, we don't have the photograph of, we don't have the historical analysis of because someone hasn't done it yet. Right. But you're that person. I think, yeah, we hopefully, we should, we should empower them a little bit. Definitely. You know, this is the history of people <laughs> and their earth and your, your people. Right. We're all in it together. Have you found, um, is your career, as a teacher, that the the curriculum that the state tells you you have to teach is it a good reflection of what you would want to do in an ideal world? Do you find it stifling? Do you find it overly ambitious? Okay, so full disclosure, my two courses are significantly more open ended because they don't have to cover a particular time period right. or even location. I mean, American government, mm-hmm. of course, is a little more. St- strict but it still is quite open-ended in terms of like political participation but yeah i mean for sure i've seen a huge evolution in standards reflecting skills and um kind of navigating away from this all history is white history attitude which is great to see that reflected in the standards it is still somewhat limiting though because there's there's so much. So people, I think teachers and students and everyone feel like their learning is dictated by some list, which is tragic. Right. It totally, in my opinion, obstructs the purpose of this kind of skill building, which right. is to go down the rabbit hole. But I mean, whatever, we still got, I guess, you know, get through the list, but do it in a way that allows students to explore. Yeah. I think there's definitely been improvements though in the expectations. Right. I will say in the world history department, the, the roadmap that, that the state gives to us is still very much the the Eurocentric white man's history where we start with the Renaissance and then mm. learn about exploration. And even in the sense that they're not necessarily whitewashing some of the horrible things that happened, you're still seeing the world unfold from the perspective oh, yeah. of white people in Europe. Um, and that's something that I know individual teachers in my department, we try really hard to try to find ways to outmaneuver and show them the other side of things. Yeah. But how do you like present world history in the Renaissance through the eyes of Aboriginal Australians, right. you know, even by that being the benchmark for that unit or the time period that's, you know, on the standard, 
ignores everything. And I mean, I get that you can't cover everything, you know, but that's why it should be way more exploratory. Like right. if we really want to talk about, okay, history of humans through a timeline or through these themes, those should not be timelines and themes that only white people got to decide. Right. And I think there's starting to at least recognize that, that what they're doing now isn't ideal for anybody. Um, I know that in uh, our district, the, the social studies are, are kind of in the process of revamping a lot of their uh, guaranteed viable curriculums and supposedly soliciting input from people to mm -hmm. um, mitigate some of these limitations that we've been discussing. Um, especially when you're teaching to a group of students, the majority of whom are not white yeah. and month after month, we're trying to insist to them why this is important, what a bunch of white people did. Um, I can see how that would be sort of alienating and, numbing after a while again like why can't these students explore what they want or what maybe they, maybe they don't know what they want yet okay so that's why we present some content to them and you know we provide some materials and resources but yeah it's kind of like the only thing we care about you knowing is a bunch of questions about british people for what for jeopardy mm -hmm. that you're going to be on someday <laughs> indeed well, Mrs. Thompson, as we're approaching the uh, twilight of our episode, do you have any final remarks you want to make sure to share with our listeners about instruction, curriculum, and assessment? Well, yeah, regarding assessment, I would, I've definitely changed my approach over the years. And I totally get that, like, there's de there are professional deadlines that we have to meet as teachers, and therefore we have to hold students to deadlines also because the semester ends, mm -hmm. you know, grades come due. But I just wonder in what other capacity we would assess somebody on a skill in, say, September, and somehow it is literally impossible for them to succeed by December because of the results of that assessment. Like, if you were trying to get some, I don't know about you guys, but in our district, our health care or benefits people always do like contests and right stuff. you know weight loss contests or blood pressure contests or whatever for incentives so if i go in in september and take my blood pressure and the next week i go take it and it's to the point where there's no way i can recover by the end of this contest i'm gonna quit the contest right so when a student is assessed in september on a high stakes or high value point value test or whatever and it drops their grade to something that even looks irrevocable even you know, even though mathematically it might not be but a 30 percent to someone right. in september is just pending doom they're gonna quit disincentivizes yeah plus wouldn't you want multiple chances to prove you got it like if i were being evaluated by my principal and he just happened to come in on a crappy day i want him coming back a second day right i want to redo i want to retake mm -hmm. you know not that like you know we hand the kid the same multiple choice questions over and over again and they just learn to eliminate the ones i already tried but if these assessments are open-ended and asking them to prove a skill i my first homemade cake wasn't the bomb i mean my last homemade cake was the bomb though, right because i practiced a whole bunch so let's give them a chance and it does mean more work for us but by the end every assignment you're getting pretty much is great because they've had so much practice right so by the end when you're really drowning it's way easier for you to grade. right and they're more motivated and confident and feel like they have yeah. something that they can show you and you're answering way fewer emails from parents mm -hmm. about grades because you know you're giving them a chance 
So I just think people should consider, and if like you need to, you know, carrot or stick the kid into sticking to deadlines, I understand that. So then just charge them time. You know, you want to turn this thing in late, do some, answer this extra question about it. And what that does is it, you know, kind of disincentivizes them to turn things in late because there's an extra question, but there's getting credit for everything that they're doing. They're proving they know it. It's like worth them taking the time to do the freaking thing because they're still going to get all the credit because they still learn the skill, even though it might not have been in September. Right. They learned it by October. Well, so what? Does the standard say learn the skill by September or does the standard say learn the skill? Right. So if we're giving them a whole semester and the grade's supposed to reflect that, I think, you know, you got till December to learn the skill. Right. Yeah, it's such a kind of a radically different way of thinking about assessments and grades than what was done when we were in school. Oh, sure. Um, so I, I find even from the perspective of a teacher, sometimes it's hard to get my head around that. But really, if the point is to be giving these young people an education and giving them an opportunity to develop skills, then that should be the what's important rather than having these arbitrary checkpoints where they have to collect a certain amount of magic points mm-hmm. to be able to mm-hmm. get moved on to the next stage. That's also why I think everything should be pass fail, but that's probably a conversation for another episode. All right. What's well, the date then? Thank you so much, <laughs> Mrs. 